Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, By Your Endurance. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 17, 2019. According to the first century historian Josephus, the Jerusalem Temple of Jesus' day was an awe-inspiring wonder. Newly constructed by Herod the Great, the temple's retaining walls were composed of stones 40 feet long. The temple occupied a platform twice as large as the Roman Forum and four times as large as the Athenian Acropolis. Herod reportedly used so much gold to cover the outside walls that anyone who gazed at them in bright sunlight risked blinding themselves. No wonder, then, that Jesus' followers in this week's Gospel reading are so dazzled by their house of worship. As Luke describes the scene, the followers fawn over the adornment of the temple, remarking on the beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God that make up the edifice's splendor. But Jesus is not impressed. Instead, he responds to their admiration with a chilling prediction. As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. In other words, even though Jesus and his followers stare at the same temple, they do not see the same thing. What the disciples see is an architectural marvel, yes, but it's also the biggest, boldest, and most unshakable symbol of God's presence they are capable of imagining. For them, the massive stones of the temple hold religious memory. They bolster a colonized people's identity. They offer the faithful a potent symbol of spiritual glory, pride, and worthiness. In short, what takes the followers' breath away as they gaze at the temple is the religious certainty and permanence those glittering stones display to the world. That's what Jesus' disciples see. But what does Jesus see? He sees ruins, rubble, destruction, Fragility, not permanence. Loss, not glory. Change, not stasis. Jesus sees all that must break and buckle and end before new life and new hope will emerge. He sees the necessity of death before the promise of resurrection. This passage from Luke's Gospel is often described as apocalyptic. If you're like me, your cultural references for apocalypse probably include Marvel superhero movies, the Left Behind fiction series, and the Book of Revelation. When I hear the word, I think of interplanetary warfare, the four horsemen, vacant-eyed zombies lurching through decimated neighborhoods, and the wholesale nuclear destruction of the planet. But in fact, apocalypse means something quite different. An apocalypse is an unveiling, a disclosure of something secret and hidden. To experience an apocalypse is to experience fresh sight, honest disclosure, accurate revelation. It is to apprehend reality as we've never apprehended it before. In that sense, what Jesus offers his disciples in the remainder of this week's gospel reading is an apocalyptic vision. He invites them to look beyond the grandeur of the temple and recognize that God will not suffer domestication. The temple is not the epicenter of his salvific work. God is not bound by mortar and stone. God exceeds every edifice, every institution, every mission statement, every strategic plan, and every symbol human beings create in his name. Moreover, God is not enslaved to superlatives. We are the ones easily seduced by the biggest, the newest, and the shiniest objects around us. In her sermon collection, God in Pain, Barbara Brown Taylor argues that disillusionment is essential to the Christian life. 
Disillusionment is literally the loss of an illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God. And while it is almost always a painful thing, it is never a bad thing to lose the lies we've mistaken for the truth. As I envision myself in the disciples' place, listening in bewilderment as Jesus pops my spiritual bubbles, here are some of the questions I'm asking. What lies and illusions do I mistake for truth? In what memories, traditions, or comfort zones do I attempt to house God? On what shiny religious edifice do I pin my hopes instead of trusting Jesus? Why do I cling to permanence when Jesus invites me to evolve? Am I willing to sit with the fact that things fall apart? Things I love, things I built, things I cried and prayed and strived for. Can I embrace a journey of faith that includes rubble, ruin, and failure? Let us pray to God that we may be free of God, the 13th century mystic Meister Eckhart writes, implying that our conceptions of God and faith must always fall short, always fail. Let's name honestly, he suggests, the imposter gods we conjure because we fear the mystery who really is. Let's admit that we shape these gods in our own image and that they serve us as much as we serve them. In other words, let's endure apocalypse that truth will set us free. Let's dare to see what Jesus sees. In the second part of the gospel story, Jesus teaches his disciples what to do and how to live when the walls come tumbling down. Contrary to what our hysteria-hungry if it bleeds, it leads culture so often encourages, Jesus insists on calm strength and truthful testimony in the face of the apocalyptic. Do not be terrified, he says, when the earth shakes and nations make war and impostors preach alluring gospels of fear, resentment, and hatred. Don't give in to despair. Don't capitalize on chaos. Don't neglect to bear witness. God is not where people often say God is. God doesn't fearmonger. God doesn't sensationalize. God doesn't thrive on human dread. So avoid hasty, knee-jerk judgments. Be perceptive, not pious. Imaginative, not immature. Make peace, choose hope, cultivate patience, and incarnate love as the world reels and changes. Expect things to get hard and then expect them to get harder. Endure, even when they do. Know that God is near no matter what the world looks or feels like. Speak the truth and trust that God's Spirit is alive and present in the act of bearing witness. Be faithful until the end, because God is still, always and everywhere, a God of love. For me, this is the great challenge of the Gospel. Not simply to bear the apocalypse, but to bear it well to bear it with the courage, calm, and faith Jesus calls me to practice in this passage. For many of us, this has been an emotionally and spiritually exhausting few years. We need look no further than the daily news to see apocalyptic images scarier than any Hollywood might produce. Here in California, where I live, thousands of acres of land are burning from massive wildfires. Elsewhere, families are starving or living on the streets or struggling in the shadow of relentless war or suffering racial or sexual violence, or attempting to cross a national border because the horrors they're leaving behind are worse than the dangers that lie ahead. In this troubling context, it is so easy to despair, or to grow numb, or to let exhaustion win. But it's precisely now 
now when the world around us feels the most apocalyptic, that we have to respond with resilience, courage, and truthful, unflinching witness. It's precisely now when systemic evil and age-old brokenness threaten to bring us to ruin that we have to testify without fear and without shame to the good news that is the gospel. What's happening is not death but birth. Yes, the birth pangs hurt. They hurt so appallingly much. But God is our midwife and what God births will never lead to desolation. Yes, we are called to bear witness in the ruins, but rest assured, these birth pangs will end in joy. By our endurance, we will gain our souls. For books this week, Dan reviews Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future by Pete Buttigieg. As I write, there are 23 Democratic candidates running for the White House in 2020. A few months ago, nobody had heard of the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, or could pronounce his Maltese last name. Since then, though, Mayor Pete has risen to the top tier of candidates thanks to his compelling personal story and fundraising prowess. Pete Buttigieg was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, where he is currently in a second term as mayor, having won 80% of the vote in the second election. He's widely credited with revitalizing his Rust Belt hometown, which in 2011 was number eight on a top 10 list of dying cities in a Newsweek article. When he was elected at the age of 29 in 2011, he was the country's youngest mayor. Before becoming mayor, Buttigieg graduated from Harvard and then Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He then was a consultant with McKinsey from 2007 to 2010, although he discovered that his heart was not in it. He served in the Navy Reserve from 2009 to 2017, and in 2014, while mayor of South Bend, he was deployed to Afghanistan for seven months as an intelligence officer specializing in counterterrorism with a top-secret clearance. He has studied seven languages, including Arabic, is openly gay and a self-described Christian who worships at St. James Episcopal Church, where he married his partner, Chasson. In 2013, Buttigieg performed with the South Bend Symphony Orchestra as a guest piano soloist. He played Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. No wonder that the Washington Post called Buttigieg the most interesting mayor you never heard of. This is a fascinating personal story. It will be interesting to see if he can add to this a compelling political vision with specific policy proposals for the entire nation. Stay tuned. For movies this week, Dan reviews Harvest Season. In 2018, California's wine country accounted for some $1.53 billion in export revenue, much of it from the famous Napa and Sonoma regions that are the focus of this documentary film from the PBS series called Independent Lens. As the movie makes clear, none of that wine wealth would be possible without the Mexican workers who account for 90% of the labor force in this industry. This film follows the stories of several of these invisible, multi-generational Latinos, guest workers, permanent residents, and winemakers. We meet Vanessa Robledo, a fourth-generation entrepreneur, Beginning with her great-grandfather, wine is all she has ever known. There is something sacred about the land, she says. There's winemaker Gustavo Brambilla, who has been in Napa for over 40 years. There are no tricks or gimmicks, says Brambilla as he talks about his wine. Just truth. That is what I've got. Angel Calderon runs the worker housing. Rene Reyes is a temporary laborer. After watching this film, you'll never open a bottle of wine in quite the same way again. The Mexican director of this film, Bernardo Ruiz, has been nominated for two Emmys.
And lastly, for poems this week, Walter Brueggemann's Dreams and Nightmares. Last night as I lay sleeping, I had a dream so fair. I dreamed of the holy city, well-ordered and just. I dreamed of a garden of paradise, well-being all around and a good water supply. I dreamed of disarmament and forgiveness and caring embrace for all those in need. I dreamed of a coming time when death is no more. Last night as I lay sleeping, I had a nightmare of sins unforgiven. I had a nightmare of landmines still exploding and maimed children. I had a nightmare of the poor left unloved, of the homeless left unnoticed, of the dead left ungrieved. I had a nightmare of quarrels and rages and wars great and small. When I awoke, I found you still to be God, presiding over the day and night with serene sovereignty, for dark and light are both alike to you. At the break of day, we submit to you our best dreams and our worst nightmares, asking that your healing mercy should override threats, that your goodness will make our nightmares less toxic and our dreams more real. Thank you for visiting us with newness that overrides what is old and deathly among us. Come among us this day, dream us toward health and peace. We pray in the real name of Jesus, who exposes our fantasies. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 19th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.